Father, we sing those songs from our hearts, acknowledging that Jesus alone has the name that is above every other name. Lord, we are here to, to learn about him and to exalt him, not to exalt ourselves, not to make much of any man or woman. Lord, we are here to make much of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, as we study it together and listen to what is commanded of us and what we are called to believe, help us to have higher, a higher estimation of our Lord Jesus Christ than, than we did when we first came in here. Help us to love him more and be more committed to following him um, leaving here than we did coming here, Lord. Uh, may your Holy Spirit minister in that way to us. I pray that your Spirit would help me in explaining your word. Um, there's a lot of tricky passages in 1 Corinthians, and so, Lord, we just acknowledge that we need your help to understand your word and to, to apply it to our lives, and so we pray that you would help us with that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're looking at verses 20 through 25 this morning. Chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. And in this passage, we're going to see that clear speech convicts, whereas cryptic speech, speech that people don't understand, condemns, or it leaves people in a state of condemnation. So that's what we're going to see this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I'm reading verses 20 to 25. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to believers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. In the book of Galatians, in chapter 2, Paul recounts an episode that occurred between him and Peter when they were both in the city of Antioch. Jews typically did not sit to eat with Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jews. And they didn't sit, sit to eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were considered to be ceremonially unclean. Despite this, Peter, who was a Jew, used to sit and eat with the Gentiles because the Lord Jesus showed him that he was a, redeeming a people for himself who consisted not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles. And so, through the blood of Christ, Christ was making all men clean, all men who would trust in him. And so it was no longer prohibited for Jews to sit and eat with Gentiles. But there came a time when some other Jewish Christians came to visit Antioch, 
and those Jewish Christians had the wrong idea in their heads that Gentiles needed to become like Jews in order to be fully part of the Christian community. And when Peter saw those individuals coming, he began to be afraid of what they might think of him rubbing shoulders with Gentiles at the dinner table. And because Peter, due to that, began to withdraw himself from them, others got sucked into that orbit because Peter was a leader. And when they saw him, due to the fear of man, withdrawing fellowship from believing Gentiles, other believing Jews, even someone so stalwart as Barnabas, began to follow his lead and hold themselves aloof from the believing Gentiles. And Paul saw this happening, and he was not pleased with what he saw happening. In Galatians 2, we find Paul getting all over Peter, like white on rice or ugly on an ape. Paul was on Peter for what he was doing. And why was Paul so concerned? Well, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says that when I saw that they, that is Peter and those who were following his bad example, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what was the problem that Paul saw when he observed Peter doing this? The problem was that Peter was not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And that phrase more literally is he was not walking straight toward the truth of the gospel. He was being confusing. He was obscuring the gospel of grace. And Paul had no patience for those who obscured the gospel of grace. When we come to 1 Corinthians 14, we find that the Corinthians also are not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, but they're doing it in a different way than Peter did it. The way that the Corinthian believers were not shooting straight with others about the gospel was that they were speaking gospel truths, but they were speaking those truths in untranslated foreign languages that no one could understand. Whether they were a believer or an unbeliever, they could not understand what was being said. They were not being straightforward about the truths of the gospel. It was veiled in language that none of the congregation, believer or unbeliever, could understand. And that was not an acceptable state of affairs in the church. And Paul is going to set those believers straight in verses 20 to 25. And from this passage this morning, we ourselves are going to learn just how important it is to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. How important it is for us to be clear when talking to others about the gospel, about the word of God. In verse 20, we're going to see Paul give these believers an affectionate admonishment. He admonishes them in verse 20. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. We've seen before that when Paul is about to admonish, sometimes he does so by 
putting his arm around them and calling them brothers. He's not standing afar off like some cold, distant authority figure. No, the admonishment he's bringing, he's bringing as a brother in Christ who loves these people. He's admonishing them for their good. And how does he admonish them? He exhorts them not to be children in their thinking. Christians are supposed to be thinking people. Now that doesn't mean that God expects us all to be a Martin Luther or a Charles Spurgeon, believers who were known to be brilliant thinkers, but it does mean that we need to be faithful to think and consider and reason with our minds to the degree that God enables us to do so. God has given every single one of us a stewardship. He's given us certain gifts and talents and certain resources that we are supposed to use to bring him glory, to build up the church, and to reach the lost with. And one of those resources that he has given us is our minds, our ability to think and to consider and to reason. Some have more ability than others. Some have less ability. But we all have, to some extent, that capacity to use the brains and the renewed minds that the Lord has given us for his glory. Are we using the minds God has given us? Are we thinking? Are we being considerate? Are we reasoning with our minds? The Corinthians were failing to be good stewards of that capacity, and it was showing up big time when it came to their time of corporate worship together in the church. What were the Corinthians failing to think about? What were they failing to consider? Well, we've seen that they have been failing to think about or consider the needs of others. That is what they are not using their minds to do, to consider the needs of others. And in this way, they are being utterly childish, which is why Paul says in verse 20, do not be children in your thinking. Who do children think most about, would you say? Themselves. When I get my son Asher up out of bed in the morning and I put him on the changing table to put a new diaper on him, there's only one word that leaves his mouth, and he says it to me repeatedly. He says, eat, eat, eat. His belly is the only belly he has any concern for. And that was like the Corinthians. They were using the gift of speaking in tongues that God had given them on themselves, which is not why God gives spiritual gifts. He gives them to build up others, not self. But they were only using it to build up themselves. And in this way, they had more in common with a two-year-old than they do with a responsible adult who is responsible to look out for the needs of others, not just himself. Paul says, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. As believers, it's a good thing to be inexperienced in evil. It's a good thing to be unpracticed in doing evil. We're supposed to keep ourselves from evil, but it is a very bad thing for a Christian to be unpracticed and inexperienced in thinking especially when it comes to considering the needs of others. Last week, we saw one group of people that the Corinthians were being inconsiderate toward. 
Who was that? It was believers, fellow believers in their midst. Look back up at verse 16. Paul says, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, he's talking there about speaking in a tongue, a foreign language, without translating it for the benefit of others. If you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. They were being inconsiderate toward fellow members of the church. If they spoke in uninterpreted tongues, the the fellow believers in the church who could not understand them were not going to be built up in the least. The tongue speaker, by not seeking to have his utterance translated for the benefit of others, was unintelligible to those who heard him. They were not built up in any way, shape, or form by the use of the tongue speaker's gift because he was using it wrongly. This week, we're going to see another group of people that the Corinthians are being inconsiderate toward. And that group of people is unbelievers. That brings us to verses 21 to 22, where Paul gives us a biblical basis for this admonishment that he has just given them. A biblical basis. Paul seeks to help these believers to think more clearly about what they've been doing. Now, you might think that speaking in uninterpreted tongues during a worship service is not that big of a deal. It's not doesn't appear to be hurting anyone. What's the harm in it? Certainly, the Corinthians didn't think there was any harm in it. They were reveling in what they were doing. But Paul's going to show them that they could not be more wrong about that. It was incredibly harmful what they were doing. Verse 21 Paul says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul here is citing Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Please turn there with me. Isaiah 28. It's helpful if we look at the context of this these couple verses that Paul is quoting here. In Isaiah 28, God is pronouncing woe upon his people in Israel and Judah. According to verse 1 of that chapter, Israel had become a nation of drunkards. He says, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, of those who are overcome with wine. God lets them know that he is going to bring a storm upon them. Verse 2, Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. He's speaking metaphorically there about Assyria, the nation of Assyria, who God is going to bring in order to punish his people. In verses 5 through 8, we find that Judah, the southern kingdom, is no different, no better than Israel. Verse 5, 
In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. When the Assyrians came and conquered Israel, in God's mercy, he allowed Judah to remain unconquered. Look at what Isaiah says about them in verse 7. He says, And these also, this remnant, Judah, these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. So they've got the same problem. They're no better. And when we get to verse 9, notice the quotation marks of verse 9. If your Bible is like mine, you won't see any quotation marks in verses 1 through 8. There are no quotation marks. That's because verses 1 through 8, Isaiah is speaking. He's delivering God's message, that pronouncement of judgment. But in verse 9, someone else is speaking. And the translators help us to notice that by placing quotation marks there. Someone else is talking. Who's that someone else? Well, it seems to be that Isaiah is recording the response of the people that he has been pronouncing judgment upon. And what are they saying? Verse 9, To whom would he teach knowledge? The he there is either a reference to God or to Isaiah. In either way, it's God's message through Isaiah. That is who they are mocking. And this is a mocking word that they are giving here. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? They're asking who Isaiah thinks he's talking to. Does he think we're children? That he's talking to us in the way he's talking? Isaiah, we don't need what you have to say to us. They go on in verse 10. For he, God or Isaiah, says, Order on order. Order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. In their drunken stupor, they mock Isaiah, saying he's like a child Sunday school teacher, endlessly spoon-feeding them orders and rules just a bit at a time. And they're like the child nodding off in the back, yawning all throughout the lesson. And when they say order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there. This is what it sounds like in the Hebrew. Tsao la tsao, tsao la tsao, kao la kao, kao la kao, za'er sham, za'er sham. It's like us saying blah, blah, blah to someone we are sick and tired of listening to. I don't know if you've ever watched the Charlie Brown cartoons on TV. When there's a scene in a classroom setting, what does the teacher sound like? It's like, wah, 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 because the kids aren't listening. And that's who Isaiah is to these drunks. But how does Isaiah respond to their mocking? Verse 11. This is Isaiah talking now. He says, indeed, he, God, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. 
He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. That's the message that Isaiah has been proclaiming. That is what God has been offering this people, and they're just yawning. He says, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, tsao la tsao, tsao la tsao, and on and on. Why is he going to speak to them that way? That they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. In other words, Isaiah is saying, oh, you think God's word is incoherent babble, do you? You like staggering around drunk, do you? Well, then God is going to speak blah, blah, blah to you. He's going to give you incoherent babble through the foreign language of the Assyrians who he's going to bring against you like a wrecking ball. And God is going to make you stagger like a drunkard through the terror that will come upon you through the Assyrians. That's what happens when you mock God, when you treat his word like it's nonsense. Eventually, God withdraws his mercy and he starts to feed you actual nonsense in order to seal you up to your hellish fate. That is the result when God in judgment starts to give you nonsense instead of clear truth. Even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Isn't that what happened after the Pharisees accused Jesus of accomplishing his miracles by the power of who? The devil. We saw that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. The Pharisees commit the unforgivable sin by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, by attributing what Jesus was doing to the work of the devil. And as a result, Jesus began changing how he spoke to the people. Look with me at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 10. This is just after Jesus has spoken in a parable. Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was explaining everything to them privately. But to them it has not been granted. To the ones who have just completely rejected all the clear truth that Jesus has been saying to them. Verse 12, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. So basically, Jesus is not going to give them truth anymore, or he's going to give it to them in a form that they cannot understand. Mercy has been withdrawn. 
It's very similar to what God is going to do to those who reject his truth during the coming days of the tribulation period prior to the second coming of Christ. We see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 8. Paul, speaking of the Antichrist, says in verse 8, Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That is what God does to those who reject his clear revelation. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 21, Paul, in quoting this passage, he, he takes out the parts of the passage that he wants to specifically apply to these Corinthians. Look again at what he quotes. He kind of blends parts together into one statement. He says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me. In this verse, Paul connects the people's unwillingness to listen directly to God's, uh, to listen directly to God speaking to them in strange tongues. That's the way it reads here. It reads as if that God is saying that not even the drastic measure of speaking to his people in foreign tongues is going to bring them to faith. Not even that measure is going to be effective in making the hard heart of the unbeliever listen to him. Therefore, the Corinthians should not think that some kind of showy display of speaking in foreign languages would convince an unbeliever to become a Christian. Instead, Paul's going to show them that this practice of theirs, speaking in tongues without translating it, actually has the opposite result. So that's the passage that Paul is quoting from in 1 Corinthians 14.21. But what does this have to do with the Corinthians' tongue speaking? What's Paul's point in quoting that passage? Well, look at verse 22. Paul says, So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. He's saying that uninterpreted foreign languages are a sign, but not the kind of sign the Corinthians think they are. Paul shows from the Isaiah passage that uninterpreted foreign languages, like the babbling of the Assyrians that the Jews heard but could not understand, are a sign of God's judgment upon unbelievers. Prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign of God's mercy both upon believers and those who will believe. God speaks incoherently to those who are under his judgment. That's what the Corinthians didn't understand when they were speaking incoherently in the corporate worship of the church. 
God speaks incoherently to those who are under his judgment. But on the other hand, God speaks coherently to those to whom he intends to show his mercy. Incoherence has no place in the church. Why? What is the church? It's the body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And are believers under the judgment of God? No. There is no what in Christ Jesus? Condemnation. So that kind of incoherence has no place in the body of Christ. Because believers are under the grace of God, not the judgment of God. What the Corinthian tongue speakers, by not translating what they were saying, what they failed to understand in their childish selfishness was that by speaking in incoherent and uninterpreted foreign tongues during the corporate worship of the church was that they had unwittingly become agents of God's judgment rather than agents of God's mercy. They had transformed the grace gift of speaking in tongues, which was meant for building up others and reaching the lost. They had transformed it into a weapon of judgment. That's not what the church is designed by God to be. The church is not to be a place where we allow people to remain ignorant of their need of salvation and of God's provision for salvation. Speaking in tongues without translating what was said left people in the dark. Ungifted believers were made to feel like they didn't belong, that they weren't a part of God's redeemed people. Unbelievers were not being given the truth that could set them free. The church is not to be like that. The church is to be a place where the one who meets our every need is clearly made known to everyone in attendance, not covered up and shrouded in mystery. This brings us to our last point in verses 23 to 25, where we see Paul give a concluding contrast. This is his exclamation point on what he's been saying for this, these past three chapters. He wants them to pursue what is best for the building up of the whole church. He's told them to pursue the greater gifts, especially that they may prophesy. He's been telling them that the gift of prophecy is greater than the gift of speaking in tongues because prophecy can build up everyone, whereas speaking in tongues without being translated can only build up the speaker. So he's going to give this contrast to show just how important it is that what is said in the church is understandable to everyone present. He gives two contrasting scenarios in these three verses to help them understand the unintended consequences of wrongly practicing the gift of speaking in tongues. And just to help impress upon you the seriousness of what Paul is going to say, let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you live somewhere in central Kansas, which is in the heart of Tornado Alley, that region of the country where tornadoes are always coming through. And imagine that in the middle of the night, you're asleep in bed, but your phone wakes you up. And you blink the sleep from your eyes in order to read the alert on your phone, and what you see is just a string of Chinese characters. And because you don't speak Chinese, and you don't read Chinese, what do you do? You delete the alert, you shut off your phone, you roll over and go back to sleep. 
But then minutes later, an F5 tornado sweeps through the house and kills you. That alert did what for you? Nothing. Nothing at all. Sealed you up to your fate is what it did. Verse 23. Keeping that in mind, what does Paul say in verse 23? Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, that's uninterpreted tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Paul paints for them the first of these two pictures. If they are holding a church service, and in that service everyone is speaking in foreign languages, and no one is translating what is being said, what will happen if either a person unfamiliar with this practice or an unbeliever walks into their midst? How are they going to respond to what they see going on? They're going to say, you're insane. They're going to say, I can watch Looney Tunes on my television at home. I don't need to come to church to watch that. If that's what the church is, count me out. When an unbeliever has walked into that kind of service, what has that unbeliever not heard? He has not heard that there is an F5 tornado of God's anger bearing down upon him. He has not heard that due to his sin, the incomprehensibly and devastatingly terrifying wrath of Almighty God is hanging over his head, ready to sweep him away at any moment. He has not heard that the everlasting fires of hell are licking the soles of his feet, primed and ready to feed on him for all of eternity. That is what he has not heard. He has also not heard that God, out of his great love, sent someone to live and die in the place of the sinner, to absorb the wrath of God on himself instead of the sinner. He has not heard that Jesus, the Son of God, became a man and lived a perfectly righteous life, died a sin-atoning death, and rose from the dead in order to give the free gift of eternal life to sinners. That unbeliever has not heard that in order to receive this free gift, he needs to repent of his sins and place his faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save him and rule him as Lord. He has not heard that there is no other way for him to escape the wrath of God and to escape his enslavement to his sin than through the one name of Jesus Christ. That is what he has not heard. Instead, the unbeliever has been given the impression that church is just another name for insane asylum, and he will never come back. And the result is that he has been sealed in his unbelief, and he has been left alone to face the wrath of God, and he's not heard that there can be any other way for him. And that was the consequence for an unbeliever going to a church that practiced the legitimate gift of speaking in tongues. That is, speaking in unlearned foreign languages. And as I've argued before, as we've walked through these passages, due to the prophetic nature of speaking in tongues, and seeing as how prophecy was a gift that was limited to the early days of the church, because it functioned as the foundation of the church, together with the gift of apostleship, 
The gift of tongues along with the gift of prophecy is no longer in operation in the church today. What is considered as the gift of tongues being practiced in the church today is not the real gift of tongues. The real gift of tongues is the ability to speak in a real foreign language that you have never heard before. That is not what we see being practiced in church today. What is being practiced in churches today is the speaking in gibberish that anyone can reproduce with any bit of practice. What do we think the consequences will be for an unbeliever who goes to a church today that is practicing a counterfeit of the gift of tongues, where all they are doing is speaking gibberish, which is no kind of language at all? How much more will the unbeliever denounce that church as crazy and leave never to return again? Such a church is not functioning as the church, an agent of the mercy of God pointing people to Christ. Such a church is instead unwittingly and disobediently functioning as an agent of God's wrath, leaving the unbeliever wallowing and drowning in his own sin, cutting him off from hearing the gospel, the only hope he has of finding forgiveness in Christ. That's the first picture Paul paints, and it's not a good picture. That brings us to the second picture that Paul paints for these Corinthian believers. In verses 24 to 25, what does he say there? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's a totally different outcome, isn't it? That is the kind of outcome that the church lives to see. That is why the church is here, to be that kind of agent of God's mercy. And this is part of the reason why Paul is urging these believers to be zealous for the greater gifts, especially that they may prophesy. Because prophecy could be understood by everyone, even by the unbeliever coming in off the street or being invited by a a church member. The gift of prophecy was exercised in an understandable language to those who were present. Last week I made the argument that the message contained in tongue speaking was no less inspired by the Holy Spirit than the message contained in prophecy. Both the speech of the tongue speaker and the speech of the prophet were inspired by God. It was just that the tongue speaker's message needed to be translated into a common language in order to benefit the church, whereas the gift of prophecy came prepackaged in a common language that could benefit the whole church. But both were the word of God. Both were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Once the tongue speaker's message was translated, It seemed to have functioned in the very same way as prophecy. But the the point that Paul has been making throughout this entire chapter is the necessity of intelligibility. A message needs to be understood before it can edify those who hear. Since in the first picture that Paul painted, the unbeliever could not understand what the tongue speaker was saying, 
Even though the tongue speaker was uttering the word of God, that unbeliever walked away just as spiritually dead as he was when he came in because he could not understand. Nobody told him or explained to him what was being said. But in Paul's second picture, because the unbeliever could understand the word of God that was being spoken, that unbeliever had the opportunity now to respond in the way Paul describes. He was, what, convicted by all, called to account by all. The secrets of his heart were disclosed, and so he fell on his face, he worshipped God, and he declared that God was certainly among them. That is what the word of God does, right? Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Famous passage most of us know. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We read in our call to worship Romans chapter 10. And remember what verse 14 said. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And verse 17 said, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. When Paul says that faith comes from hearing, what's implied there? That you're hearing with understanding. That you're understanding the word of Christ that has been proclaimed to you. I cannot repent if I do not know what I am to repent of. I cannot place my faith in someone who has not been clearly explained to me. Paul is making it crystal clear to these Corinthians that in order for them to be helpful both to believers and unbelievers, they need to speak in understandable language. Speaking in tongues without translating it edified no one. And worse, it left the unbeliever drowning in his own sin. Now, you may have wondered why it is that we do certain things that we do here at this church. Why do we take the time to read an entire chapter of Scripture on a Sunday morning? Why do we sing dusty old songs that were written hundreds of years ago? Why are the praise songs we sing so wordy and doctrinal and not the typical praise songs we hear on the radio? Songs on K-Love or the like that have seven words and are sung 11 times over and over again. Songs that have words that are so vague that you can make them mean whatever you want them to mean. Words that are so cliche, bland, and innocuous that an unbeliever can listen to it without feeling one pang of his conscience as he sits there and listens to what is being played. And the believer can listen to it without being challenged in the slightest, without being exhorted or encouraged, challenged or deeply comforted. Why does the preacher 
not tell more stories or give more self-help tips. He'd be more, infinitely more interesting than he is. Why does he just read the Bible, explain the Bible, and tell me to believe and obey the Bible? It's because the Word of God and the truth drawn from the Word of God that we sing and preach here is the only thing that can save your soul. Vague words and silly stories cannot bring the dead to life. The Word of God is the only thing that can sanctify a believer. The Word of God is the only thing that can warn the sinner that he is on his way to hell and that there is only one name under heaven that has been given among men by which he must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. This passage this morning impresses upon us the importance of being clear with one another. You need to learn how to share the gospel clearly and simply so that you can tell it to someone else. You need to memorize scripture and hide it in your heart so that when someone is struggling with sin or with a great trial, instead of giving them a pat on the head and saying, there, there now, I'll be thinking about you, you can give them something that will feed their soul, that will carry them over the hurdle of sin, that will buoy them up as they're drowning in their sorrows. Only the word of God can do that. The word of God is the only rock that we can stand on. When we are not clear and straightforward about the truth of the gospel with one another, all we are doing is allowing one another to languish in our own sin and heartache. Let's not be children in our thinking. Let's be considerate of the deepest need of one another. And our most deepest need is to hear the word of God. And the apostles and the prophets are the ones God has used to deliver it into our hands. Are we opening this book? Are we reading it? Are we believing it? Do we understand that this word of God is sufficient for our every need in Christ Jesus? And that it is only through the hearing of this word that someone can be saved? Until we're convinced of that, we will never take this book seriously. And we will never give to others the only thing that can save them. Let's pray.